Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Make sure that you check out Walters' self-pour beer wool. Included on tap is Baby Shark IPA, Sunny Little Thing, Grapefruit Nectar, and more. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the 2-1. Manessis hits one to deep left center field. Does he have another one? Back goes Ortega looking up, and there it goes. Joey Manessis hits one about seven rows deep into the bleachers in left center. Another home run for the Nationals' rookie sensation, Joey Manessis. 2-0 Nationals, home run number four in his first week in the big leagues. Here's the wind in the 1-1. Swing a long drive left field. Back on this one, Hernandez looking up at the wall, and it is gone. A solo shot for Nico Horner pulls the Cubs within two to one. His seventh of the season. Towering home run to straightaway left. And Gray surrenders his first homer of the day, his 29th of the season. High target Barrera, the 0-2. Swinging a ground ball, right field basing. Right between Hernandez and Manessis. That'll score Madrigal. The Cubs have scored four times in the inning and now lead 4-2. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, August 11th, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Wrigley Field in Chicago. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. His real name is Joey Manessis. His name on this podcast is Joey Fourbags. Call him what you want, but it now is his world And we're just living in it, man. Joey Manessis, a.k.a. Joey Fourbanks, he on Wednesday afternoon homered again. Homered for a third time in three games in a three-game series at the Cubs. Homered for a fourth time in seven major league games off having spent a decade in the minors. This really has become some story. Josiah Gray on Wednesday afternoon was good for the first time in a while. There were things to like on Wednesday afternoon, but there ended up being too many things not to like. And the Nats did lose a 4-2 loss at the Cubs to drop two or three games in the series. That's fall to a major league worst, 37 and 66. But Mark, is it too soon to start printing the Nats Chat Podcast Joey Fourbags t-shirts? Because I feel like we have stumbled into something here. It's never too soon, Al. Come on, Tim, get on it. If they're not available in time for Friday's opener of the homestand, we are not fulfilling our duties as the creators of memes and nicknames and uh, turning previously unknown players into local celebrities. I mean, come on, we got to get going with this. It's such a remarkable thing. And the first in franchise history to hit four homers in his first seven games. 
Think about all the players who've come through this franchise. That includes the Expos. All the big name power hitters who've come through this franchise. And the one to hit four homers in his first seven games is 30-year-old Joey Manessis. That's the beautiful thing of this. You can't predict this. You never know what might happen. Here's a guy who literally all of us had never heard of or barely heard of a week ago. The only reason he gets brought up is because they traded away one of the best young players in baseball. And now look what he's done in a week. It's great. It's unfortunate outside of Tuesday night's game that hasn't actually led to more victories, but good for him. He's having the time of his life right now. Yeah, we will get to the latest Victor Robles boo-boo. We will get to the latest struggles for the Nats bullpen. We will get to a good outing from Josiah Gray as well. But it's pretty funny to see this in a season in which you've had, obviously, so few things go well, but also like, you know, so few surprising positives, like pleasant surprises. There have been so few. Like the only real positives have been the people who you figured would be positives, like Juan Soto and Josh Bell when they were here and maybe a few other people. Like by and large, You've been disappointed, to be honest with you, by a lot of players. And so to have something like this is pretty cool. It's certainly refreshing. It's new blood. It's new life. Like we've said, I mean, who knows where this is going? Uh, you know, I don't know that anyone really is like buying into Joey Manessis being a real force to be reckoned with for years to come. But on the other hand, who knows? You know, maybe they end up getting a few productive seasons out of the guy. You never know. But all credit to him. He has come up and he has not been overwhelmed. He on Wednesday afternoon, it was an ad starting first baseman and cleanup batter. And he went two for three with a solo homer, a single and a walk. In the top of the fourth, had a leadoff opposite field single to right field. He in a Nats one run six, had a leadoff homer to center field for a 2 nothing Nats lead, 422 feet per stat cast. And he in the top of the eighth, drew a two out six pitch walk. He homered in each game in this series. He hit big homers in terms of how the homers impacted games. And he hit some pretty convincing homers in this series, multiple 400 plus foot homers. So, you know, there's like the special nature of being in the majors. It had to be special to be playing in Wrigley Field. And then you homer in each game at Wrigley Field. That's a pretty good last three days for Joey Manessis. He's also the first players in Nationals history to do that, to hit three homers in a series at Wrigley Field. And again, think about the players they've had over the years come through here. And the first one to hit three homers is Joey Manessis. So it's such a fun thing. And you enjoy it, but you're also like, man, what if this was happening for a team that was competitive, number one? Number two, what if, like you said, this was the kind of thing that was helping make a bad season more enjoyable? It's unfortunately happening at the worst possible time, at least emotionally, for fans. I mean, I don't care what he does. He's never going to uh, live up to the guy he technically replaced. And <laughs> you can take your pick, either Josh Bell or Juan Soto. He kind of replaced them both. And so it's unfortunate circumstances for it. If this had happened at a different time or a few years ago or earlier in the season, it would almost become like this cult hero sort of thing. And instead, this is happening you know, really at a low point for the franchise over the last week. And it's only going to get more difficult when they return to play Friday night against, oh yes, the San Diego Padres. But like you said, this is legit, at least what he's done in these games. These are not cheap home runs. These aren't Wrigley Field specials. He's hitting them to both sides of the field. He's also getting hits. He's drawing walks, playing pretty good defense, both at first base and in the outfield. There's a lot to like here. I don't know how long it'll last, but ride the wave for now. Enjoy it because there have been very few things to enjoy this season. Well, for what it's worth, as we tape this installment of the Nats Chat podcast on early Wednesday evening, 
Since August 2nd, Juan Soto has one home run for the Padres, and Joey Manessis has four home runs for the Nationals. So there is that. And come this weekend against Soto and the Padres at Nationals Park, how about we give the loudest pop, not for the returning Soto, but to the Nationals Park debuting Joey Manessis or the Nationals Park returning Joey Manessis. I think that would be nice if we can uh, maybe do something like that. But yeah, good stuff from Joey Manessis on Wednesday afternoon. The other guy I want to highlight here, because again, you know, we're in this mode of the results don't matter, the individual performances do. Josiah Gray, he needed what he ended up doing on Wednesday afternoon. Josiah Gray had not been pitching well lately, and the numbers for his season really had started to crater. Look, I get it. The Cubs are not a very good team this season, but still, Josiah Gray at this point, you're like, just go out and pitch well. And he did pitch well on Wednesday afternoon. He ended up pitching well for the first time by my count, in five starts. So Josiah Gray went out there on Wednesday afternoon, two runs in six into third innings. He had five strikeouts versus no walks. Gave up seven hits, a homer, a double, and five singles. He threw a lot of strikes, 96 pitches, 64 strikes versus 32 balls. So he uh, literally doubled up the number of balls with strikes. And the only damage he gave up came in what ended up being a four-run seventh here for the Cubs. He gave up a leadoff homer to Nico Horner. Only one home run given up by Josiah Gray in this outing. And then the other run that was charged to him ended up scoring uh, off the Nats bullpen. And actually, it was off a hit that Gray gave up to an ex-Nat, Jan Gomes. A one-out single through the left side of the infield on a 1-2 pitch. And then Josiah Gray got pulled from the game. He needed this. It was really good to see this. And it was a reminder of, you know what? This guy can still be a good pitcher for the Nats. Things had not been trending well, but it felt like for at least a game here, he got himself back on track with what he did on Wednesday. He did. And what I liked about it, the way that he went about it, and I think this is a good lesson for him, and I think he took this away from it because he mentioned it himself, is that he was down in the zone a lot more. He's been getting burned so much on high fastballs and hanging breaking balls. Then that's why he's given up a league leading 29 home runs now. What they've been trying to pound into his head and what he actually put into practice in this game was balancing pitches up in the zone when the time was right with quality strikes down in the zone. You saw fastballs down. You saw breaking balls that weren't always out of the zone. You're not just trying to get them to chase, but actually get them to swing at, say, a slider down and away you know, on the corner. And he's getting outs with that and he was getting quick outs from that. His pitch count was much lower than it's been in recent outings. I mean, he was at, what, 56 pitches after four innings, 71 after five, 85 after six. That's what even allowed him to be in a position to come back for the seventh inning. And I know the seventh inning itself didn't go great. And so the start sort of kind of ended on a soured note, but the efficiency he showed, keep the ball down in the zone, not walk anybody. It showed you a different path to which he can be successful. Most of his best starts in the big leagues have included a lot of strikeouts. This wasn't that. It was what you say, five of them, right? But no walks, quicker outs, some ground balls. He can do it that way. He's just got to find the right balance. Yeah, it looked different. It did look different. And uh, it's nice to see him be able to pitch effectively in that manner. You know, it was good over the final two games of this series. You saw the two centerpieces of the trade with the Dodgers now two Julys ago do well. Kbert Ruiz with the two-homer game on Tuesday night. Josiah Gray pitching well on Wednesday afternoon. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It is time for Window Nation's back to school sale. And what a sale this is. 
Two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing with no interest until 2025. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Window Nation windows are the best. Lower your energy bills. Raise the value of your home with new energy-efficient windows from Window Nation. Get an A-plus in savings by taking advantage of the back-to-school sale. Again, Two free windows for every two that you buy, plus pay nothing with no interest until 2025. Window Nation knows exactly what it's doing. The average Window Nation installer has over 16 years of experience with over 20,000 windows installed. And Window Nation offers a variety of windows. Over 1,500 custom window combinations are available, vinyl, wood, and fiberglass. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you and ask for the back-to-school sale. Again, buy two windows, get two windows free on any style of new window from Window Nation, plus pay nothing until 2025. That's windownation.com or 866-90-NATION, windownation.com or 866-90-NATION, and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's Nick Madrigal. See Sheck deals. Swinging a ground ball up the middle. Diving is Vargas. He can't get it. It's a base hit. Wisdom heading home. Robles firing home. And it hits the backstop on the fly. And the runners will move up. Cubs tie the game on the base hit by Madrigal. Robles overshoots everybody. And now the go-ahead runs at third. And Madrigal at second. It's the Cubs two and the Nationals two. Joey Manessis, good. Josiah Gray, good. Victor Robles, for a while, good. He had an excellent defensive play in this game. Now the pitch. Swing by Higgs and a drive to left center field. Robles on the run to his right. Can he get there? He dives. Oh, what a catch. Oh, what a catch by Robles. Now gets up, firing all the way to first, but not in time. That gets lost in what ended up happening with Robles in that Cubs four-run seventh. As we have said with Victor, it's always interesting, and it's never simple. It's never, well, he did this well, and that was it. It's always, well, he did this well, but then he also did this thing not so well, and uh, we had another one of these circumstances on Wednesday afternoon. So Victor Robles, uh, first of all, another bad offensive game. We don't even talk about this really anymore. He's having another horrendous offensive season. I know there was a brief spurt here recently where he had some hits, but 0 for 4 with a strikeout left two men on base on Wednesday. His OPS for the year is at 603. 
but he made an excellent defensive play. And it's one of those plays that, I mean, I don't know if anyone else on the Nats could have made this play. Bottom of the fifth, runner on first, great full extension diving backhanded catch of a P.J. Higgins liner in deep left center field for the second out. I mean, the degree of difficulty on a play like that feels like it's sky high, and yet he made that. I mean, incredible athleticism. But then also for Victor, in that four-run Cub seventh, a throwing error on a one-out first pitch RBI single by Nick Madrigal up the middle. Uh, the single tied the game at two. But it wasn't just that Robles made like an errant throw. He airmailed the throw, intended for home plate. The throw went all the way to the backstop. And the worst part about the throw is that it was an unnecessary throw. Robles had no chance of throwing out the runner who ended up scoring Patrick Wisdom. So bad decision, bad throw. And it ends up coming up in the inning. It ends up happening in the inning that cost the game. It was a 4-2 loss. That was a four-run seventh for the Cubs. Yeah. So here's the thing. It's situational awareness. We've talked about it. Davey Martinez and the coaching staff has pounded this into his head all year and going back multiple years, and it has not stuck with him. When you're playing any position in baseball, you learn this in Little League, at least I remember learning it. Think to yourself before the pitch is thrown, if the ball is hit to me, what am I going to do with it? Okay. If I'm in center field in that moment and it is a one run game at that point with runners on first and second, and I say, well, if I get a ground ball to me, a base hit to center field, what am I going to do? I'm going to look to see if I have a shot at getting the runner out of the plate. But if I don't, don't let the go ahead run advance behind him. And instead, it at least gave the impression that never even crossed his mind. He charges the ball and he comes up firing and it was nowhere close. But here's the thing. Even if he made a perfect throw to the plate, it still wouldn't have mattered because it would have allowed the runners to advance. It wasn't even the air of it, the wildness of it made it look even more spectacular and and mind boggling. But even if he makes a perfect throw, there's still no reason to make the throw. He had no chance to get him out. You're still letting the trailing runner advance. That ends up being the potential go-ahead run. And wouldn't you know what happens next? Next batter, fly ball to right center field, which, by the way, Robles and Lane Thomas almost collided on. And that is a sack fly. If the runners are still at first and second, maybe they advance one base, but they don't score. And who knows what happens the rest of that inning. And so it's five years now almost since he made his major league debut. We've seen this from him over and over and over. This is not a case of a coaching staff not making clear to him what he needs to do. This is a guy who either isn't listening or can't listen to what they're saying, or in the moment, simply can't control himself to prevent himself from doing those kinds of things. There's no excuse for that at this point. There is no excuse for it. Yeah. And I think it's one of these things too, that makes you obviously look down upon the player. But I think you also ask the question of why can't the organization get through to him. I mean, when someone keeps making the same mistake over and over and over, either you need to get through to him or you need to move on to someone else. And, you know, maybe it's as simple as they don't have anybody else. But, you know, I I don't like this thing of like, well, we got to just keep on him. Like Davey Martinez during his post-game session with you guys was like, well, we just got to keep on him. You've been keeping on him for five years. I mean, pretty clearly what you're doing isn't working or isn't registering, isn't clicking for him. So why is that? I mean, are they not forceful enough with the message? Are they not repetitive enough with the message? I don't understand something like that. You know, there's another thing, too, with Robles. It's interesting the juxtaposition because this comes a game after Lane Thomas in center field had that outstanding throw home. And, 
You know, I don't think that Thomas at his best is as good as Robles at his best defensively, but I do know this. Robles was a spectacular defensive center fielder in 2019. He has not been at that level since then. Now, he's been better the last few years than he was in 2020 when he struggled, but he, to me, he's still not back at that 2019 level. Like, we focus a lot on the offense because that's really the thing that has declined. Certainly, if you go by the metrics, his defense still is not back at that 2019 level. He's like a a slightly above average defensive center fielder this season, as too, by the way, is Lane Thomas. And so, you know, I'd be tempted to say, well, he makes these inexplicable mistakes, but, you know, he's just so good the rest of the time. I don't think we can say that with Robles defensively. Like, he's more good than bad, but the good isn't so good to where you can just swallow these miscues that he keeps committing. Right. And, you know, also let's lump it in with the offense where you would say, okay, the offense has been next to nothing, but he's so good in in the field that we can live with it and he'll be our number nine hitter. And, you know, that's fine. You live with that. Well, as we know, the offense hasn't been close to good enough, but like you said, the defense hasn't been so great that you can ignore everything else. Like he has not been so valuable in center field that you can live with a lack of offense from him. So yeah, I agree. And look, I think we saw late last season and even at times during this year, I think the organization has been ready to move on at times from him. You saw them send him down last year, didn't get called up in September. You saw he wasn't guaranteed to win a job this year. They wanted Lane Thomas to be in the lineup. But look at where they are right now, especially after trading Juan Soto. They don't have three quality starting outfielders at the moment. And so he's kind of in there by default. There are some games when they can do some different things, but they don't have enough depth right now to do it otherwise. And they don't really have anybody on the horizon. I mean, they got some exciting young center field prospects now in the organization, but they got a ways to go. These are young kids who are like 20 years old or less. So it's going to be a while. So, you know, part of me wonders if they benched him or if they sent him down, would that get the message across? And maybe it would, but in the back of his mind, maybe he just knows, yeah, they're always just going to call me up again at some point. I'm going to get another chance because they don't have anybody else at this point. Who's declined? from 2019, do you think has hurt the Nats more? Victor Robles' decline or Patrick Corbin's decline? I'm going to say Corbin just because from having one of the best rotations in baseball to like clearly the worst has hurt them, I think, a lot more. Strasburg injury, of course, is even bigger than any of that. But Corbin, because of the commitment they made to him and because this was a team that all along was built on pitching and starting pitching in particular, I think that's been more damaging. Robles, yes. I mean, we've talked about how he once was the top prospect. He was the untouchable guy who they wouldn't move in a deal for JT Real Muto and was even considered the better all-around prospect than Juan Soto. So yes, it's incredibly disappointing. But that said, they've had enough else around the field and in a lineup to be able to get by, even if Robles didn't pan out to be the star that we thought he might be. They have nothing else pitching-wise, as we've seen. I think Corbin's has been costlier to the team. But make no mistake, they could have withstood some of these losses of position players over the years if Robles had turned into not even a star, but just a good, solid player. And he hasn't been anything close to that since 2019. Yeah. I mean, I remember the conversation very clearly when it came to letting Bryce Harper go in free agency. One of the justifications was, well, we have Victor Robles and Juan Soto, you know, and I thought that made a lot of sense. I was like, yeah, you do. And you have them under team control for years to come. And well, a few things have changed since then.
So yeah, Robles had the boo-boo on Wednesday afternoon. The Nats also had another one of these ho-hum offensive games on Wednesday. We should make that clear. Joey Manessis was great to see him do as he did. But the Nats uh, for the game, just the two runs, uh, nine hits, a homer, a double, and seven singles, a mere one walk. Nats struck out 12 times, went one for seven with runners in scoring position. No Luis Garcia. He was a late scratch due to right knee soreness. Nelson Cruz did play, but he pinch hit off getting pulled from the game on Tuesday night due to right shoulder soreness. Actually had a pinch hit, top of the eighth, pinch two out single. But just not much else happening offensively. Luke Voigt has had a bad last two games. He on Wednesday went 0 for 4 with two strikeouts, left three men on base. And then we also had some more bullpen struggles for the Nats on Wednesday afternoon off what went down over uh, these last few games here. So you had that four-run seventh, like we said. Uh, Steve Ciszek in that inning charged with two runs, one earned, and got just one out. Came into the game with a runner on first, one out, and the Nats nursing a 2-1 lead. He issued a one-out seven-pitch walk of P.J. Higgins. Gave up that one-out first pitch RBI single to Nick Madrigal, on which Victor Robles had the throwing error. And then Ciszek gave up a one-out full-count RBI sack fly to Rafael Ortega. So that put the Cubs up 3-2. And then Carl Edwards Jr. came to the game. And, you know, he comes to the game in a tight spot. Runner on third, two outs, Nats down 3-2. But he gives up a two-out RBI single to the first batter he faces, Ian Happ, to right field on an 0-2 pitch for a 4-2 Cubs lead. These are singles. You're not giving up homers. This is not unlike what we saw in the previous game. But the bullpen unable to get the job done. Victor Arano did toss a scoreless bottom of the eighth inning. But uh, an unfortunate seventh inning for sure for the Nets. Yeah. And I just think back to how much these guys have worked here lately. Edwards threw the night before and that four out save, he threw 27 pitches. And you're asking him to come back the next day and get out of a big spot. Maybe it was bound to happen. Ciszek didn't pitch on Tuesday, but as we know, he's thrown a lot here as well. And I mean, the shame of it was they finally got the deep quality start that they've been looking for, which you think should set the bullpen up to be better. But it almost felt like they all needed a day off and this would have been better off you know, if somehow Josiah had gone like eight innings and just hand the ball to Kyle Finnegan, well, that wasn't going to happen. You know, eventually we knew this bullpen's going to come back to earth a little bit. They couldn't be quite as good as they've been for the last month. But, you know, singles are going to kill you, but they're also within there were what a leadoff walk issued by C-Shack, Victor Arano in the ninth in the eighth, I'm sorry, hit the first battery face. Edwards' first battery face is single. So none of them got the first batter out. That's a tough spot to be in as well. Offensively, they should have done more. They had chances earlier in the game, did not come through. There were some strikeouts with runners in scoring positions, some bad at-bats, and a continuation of really what we've seen so much from them this year. Yeah, the bullpen, you, you, you get the feeling with the pen, especially at this point in the season, especially with the just the awful starting pitching lately, although last two games now much better with Paolo Espino and Josiah Gray. It's like a, a boat that's taking on water and you're just trying to hold on. And, you know, you got a month plus to go in the season. And so are you going to be able to hold on to where things don't get especially bad? Looks like Jake McGee is going to be on board here for this weekend series against the Padres. The Nats, after the game, option Mason Thompson to AAA Rochester. Boy, poor Mason. I mean, he came back from the injury. He pitched well. Then he gets sent down, gets brought back up. And now he's back down again uh, to, to make room for uh, Jake McGee in his age 35 season. You got to feel for Mason Thompson these days. Yeah. And I understand fans' frustration with the way some of these things have gone. He's the victim of the options game. It's happened to him. It's happened to some other younger guys. Remember Hunter Harvey went down briefly for a while. And I think it's frustrating when they're being sent down so that veterans who aren't going to be here potentially beyond this year are now having opportunity to pitch. 
I get it. In the situation this team is in, you would rather see them cut loose veterans and keep young guys who may actually be building blocks. Mason Thompson may be a building block for this team and the bullpen, but if we don't get a chance to see him for any length of time, how are you going to know what he might become? I don't think it necessarily speaks to them being dissatisfied with him or thinking this means he doesn't have a future in the organization. It's a numbers game. It is frustrating though. We've talked about it in so many different aspects. At this point of a season in which a team is on pace to lose 110 games, how many veterans with no real future beyond this year they continue to put out there and sometimes at the expense of young guys who may actually have a future here? Yeah, and veterans on whom the wrong calls have been made. You know, Cesar Hernandez fail, Michael Franco fail, Nelson Cruz fail. You know, you you pick the wrong guys. These guys have not worked out. Now, I haven't hammered them for Jake McGee because if you're telling me the thinking is rehab them this season, bring them back for next season, and then flip them next season, I don't think that that's crazy. But, you know, it is a bit of a risk because you could rehab him this season and then he signs elsewhere this offseason. So I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like you better know what you're doing here if you're going to try to do that. So we'll see on that one. Yeah, it, it is funny. I mean, the Nats lead the planet in 30-something players despite being a rebuilding team. It's odd. This was an issue last season, and this has continued to be an issue this season. And, you know, you would hope by next season you have enough promising young players to where you don't have to keep going to this well of 30-somethings just to fill up roster spots. I mean, it's just not healthy for the state of things here with the team. So a few nuggets on the Nats prospects, because it is the future that we look toward here these days. So Harleen Susana, one of the players who the Nats got from the Padres in the Juan Soto deal, made his Nats debut on Tuesday. He averaged 100 miles per hour with his fastball in two innings of work. His fastball topped out at 102 miles per hour. So Harleen Susana is the youngest of the guys who the Nats got from the Padres. I know there's a thinking that he may have the most upside of anyone who the Nats got from the Padres. I know it's going to be years until we see him at the major league level, at least we think. But he's a big kid. He's a flamethrower. And it's exciting to have someone with that kind of ability in your system. Sure, because they haven't had a lot of those types over the years. Now, let's keep in mind this is in rookie ball in West Palm Beach, facing fellow teenagers, recent draft picks, kids who've just been brought in from the Dominican Republic, that kind of thing. But you got to start somewhere. I do think it's interesting. I've heard this mentioned by some people around the sport, not just with the Nationals, that sometimes there's a philosophy with guys like that who throw that hard. And despite being young and so inexperienced, there's a line of thought that says, as long as they're not a disaster, promote them quickly, bring them up because you don't know how long that arm is going to last. You don't know when it's going to go and when he might get hurt or whatever. And so if he has the ability to come close to throwing strikes and can consistently top 100 miles an hour and get hitters out at different levels of the minors, why say, hey, we got to wait four years for him? If he can do it in two years and all of a sudden you're calling him up and bringing him out of your bullpen and get whatever you can out of him as long as you can, that there's a little bit of a line of thought to doing that. I don't know. It is risky. It's especially on a team that's rebuilding. I mean, like if if you're a contender and you're like, hey, we can bring in some electric arm to help us in our bullpen for a stretch run. Okay. You catch lightning in a bottle. I don't know if in this case that makes the most sense, but I'll be curious to see with him in particular, what their pace of promotion is with him. Do they really take it slow and just hope he keeps us up and four years from now we see him? Or would they be a little more aggressive saying, hey, he throws this hard now. We don't know if he's going to do this forever. Let's let's get him up the pipeline and try to get him here as soon as we can. 
Yeah, I think the key is if you are a contender, I think there's merit to that line of thinking. We saw the Rays do it years ago with David Price. I remember the Orioles, when they got good in 2012, they had Dylan Bundy. They brought him up and he pitched for them very briefly. If you're a bad team, a rebuilding team, it you know probably doesn't make much sense. And of course, as we all know, like you can throw a thousand miles per hour, but if you can't find the plate, that's not doing anybody any good. I mean, Henry Rodriguez, I mean, if velocity was all that mattered, Henry Rodriguez would be in Cooperstown right now. But uh, we know that there's a little more to it than just the velocity. But yeah, I mean, I think with Harlan Susana, what is exciting is when you have this kind of physical ability, the upside is just so extreme. And it's been a long time now since the Nats have had a pitching prospect who was like banging on the door to be brought up and was like seducing you with all of these extreme physical skills. I mean, Steven Strasburg might be the last guy. I guess Lucas Giolito maybe to a point, but we know things kind of got weird once he got called up. And so this guy, Susana, I mean, first of all, I think it's notable, at least the way it's been framed, they got him because of Josh Bell, right? Because they included Bell in the package there with Soto. So I think that's kind of notable. That's something to always keep in mind with him. But, you know, listed as being 6'6", and he can throw so hard, and, you know, it's a really enticing person to have. Another thing with the Nats prospects is, so we mentioned a few episodes ago, Baseball America came out with its updated list of the top 100 prospects. Nats have five of the top 55 Well, Baseball America now has come out with the top prospects within each organization. And if you look at the top 10 prospects in the Nats organization for Baseball America, let's see here, seven of the 10 are position players. So we've gone from the Nats having this like just real lack of true promising position playing prospects to now for Baseball America having send seven of the organization's top 10 prospects as position players, including, uh, let's see here, five of the top six, C.J. Abrams, one, Robert Hassel, the third two, James Wood, three, Elijah Green, four, Brady House, six, uh, Cade Cavalli is number five, and then Christian Vaccaro is number seven. So six of the top seven are position playing prospects. Yeah, it's a big difference from where they've been. I think there was a calculated effort to do that. Now, the flip side is, do they have enough pitching already in-house? And if not, where are they going to get that from? There's only so many opportunities to do it. And it does underscore why they really need Kate Cavalli to be legit. Ultimately, Cole Henry, Jackson Rutledge, those kind of guys, because if it doesn't happen with them, there's not a whole lot else in the pipeline. And now you're trying to build a contending team again without the kind of pitching, particularly starting pitching that at least we know Mike Rizzo believes is critical to try to win championships. Yeah. Well, I think that philosophy may be altered if he doesn't have the starting pitching. I think when you're rebuilding, you're just trying to get as many good players as possible. And then whoever ends up being good, that ends up being your philosophy on how you win. Because as we know, you can win in a lot of different ways. But no doubt, you want to have good starting pitching. So per Baseball America, the Nats' top three pitching prospects are one, Cade Cavalli, two, Harleen Susana, three, Jackson Rutledge. Mackenzie Gore isn't considered a prospect. Do you know, though, was he, is he considered more of a prospect than Cavalli? Or like if you had to put those guys in a hierarchy, would Cavalli be ahead of Gore? Do you know how the organization looks at those two? So I do know that uh, like a year ago or whatever it was, Gore was considered a top 10 prospect in baseball before reaching uh, the big leagues with the Padres and so graduating out of that. So my guess would be that he would rank ahead of Cavalli. Now, internally, the Nationals may say, hey, we think Cavalli actually has the better stuff, the higher ceiling, whatever it is. Gore has had some moments in the big leagues, but also a little bit erratic there and certainly struggled over about the last month before he got hurt with the elbow inflammation. So we'll see. I'm very interested to see him. 
Is he the future ace of the team? Is Cavalli the future ace of the team? I don't know. But there is a, a path here. You know, I said, well, they've got to find some pitching elsewhere. Well, if Cavalli and Gore and Josiah Gray and then either Cole Henry or Jackson Rutledge, I mean, that could be four legitimate young starters that you have. And then you, in theory, have some money eventually to go out and spend on a free agent pitcher. That could work. But what they've done position player wise is they've given themselves enough quantity of talent that you don't need them all to pan out for this to work out. On the pitching side, they're still kind of at a point where they need at least most, if not all of these guys to be legit because there isn't a fallback option if they don't. Well, next up for the Nats is that three-game series against Juan Soto and the Padres at Nationals Park this weekend. And if you look at the starting pitching probables for the Nats, uh, they are Corey Abbott, Anibal Sanchez, and Paolo Espino. All due respect to all three guys, but you know this is why you focus on a Cade Cavalli and a Harleen Susana and a Jackson Rutledge, and you hope like heck that the arms are coming, that the cavalry is a coming, because... You know, and look, we'll see what happens this weekend against the Padres, but you're throwing Abbott, Sanchez, and Despino against one of the more formidable lineups in the majors. I know things haven't gone exactly swimmingly for the Padres since the trade for Soto was made, but we know what the potential is in that lineup. And, you know, it's tough facing a lineup like that when you're throwing Abbott, Sanchez, and Despino. So we know that things need to get better, and hopefully the Nats are on the path to things getting better. I would love to know what their scouting report is for Juan Soto. Like, is there a scouting report? (laughs) Maybe it's, it may seriously just be, don't take any chances. If you walk him, so be it. Take your chances with Machado, Bell, Tatis, if he's back, like anybody else but one. I would not be surprised if he draws a lot of walks in that series. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why you would throw him a strike. (laughs) Why would you throw him a strike at any point over these three games? I mean, just no, don't do it. Tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the podcast, hit up Tim Shovers at email address again, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. We'll see about the Joey Manessis t-shirts. We'll get into uh, intense hardcore negotiations on that one. NatsChatPodcast.square.site. NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And go Northwest D.C. Little League, which is taking on Pennsylvania Thursday afternoon at 1. The winner gets Delaware on Friday. D.C. representing and hopefully headed to Williamsport. We thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast.